0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and if you're joining us for the first time, whether here in person uh, or online, I just want to say thank you for being here. Uh, It's a a real joy to have you worshiping with us here on this Sunday. And and like Julie said, this is a kind of a kickoff for us. A lot of times churches will sort of, you know, use the fall as a chance to sort of kind of kick back into the swing of things, and we wanted to do the same this year uh, as well. And as a a church, we want to sort of be always speaking into the moment that we're in, uh, in society. We, we want people to be able to, you know, a, a, you know, as they leave church, to feel like they're equipped to think in a way that is, is Christ-like, that follows Jesus, um, and, and gives them a sort of a like Julia just said, a blueprint for the kingdom for how they can walk uh, in their lives. And so we want to be speaking to, to big moments, and the fall feels like a natural place for us to do this. And so, I don't know, we're three years into a church. I don't know if every fall will be like this, but the last two at least, we've sort of taken the fall as a chance to sort of speak into uh, the, these big moments. So last fall, we did one on sort of kingdom politics, trying to ask, what does it look like to follow Jesus as our king in a highly contested, uh, partisan uh, world that we live in where, um, you know, our loyalties are going to be pulled, you know, to different extremes. What does it look like for us to follow Jesus in the midst of that? We figured it was very relevant going into the election season that we were in. And this fall, we want to talk a little bit about something called deconstruction. So... There we go. So we want to talk a little bit about this thing called deconstruction. So this is maybe something that you have uh, heard of. It's kind of a popular word right now, especially on social media, for, you know, especially among evangelicals. And it's sort of typically, not always, but I think typically a lot, it's responding uh, against a sort of strict biblicism and then like the strict interpretations that can often come in communities uh, um, around that. And oftentimes, the Bible itself sort of is equated with Christianity. There's not necessarily nuance. And so the problem there is when you come across some sort of stumbling block or some sort of crack maybe in Scripture, it seems like it might throw everything off. The whole thing kind of crumbles. Um, and, and there's sort of been some movement uh, you know, in different spaces around this for a lot of people, and a lot of people are asking hard questions. You meet, might be one of those people. You might know people. Um, And the the term deconstruction, it actually, it's a literature term by a a guy named Jacques Derrida. And and somehow it got associated, it got kind of incorporated and used uh, for this movement. Um, I'm not sure how that happened. Either way, though, it is a word that gets used a lot. Now, the hard thing is it's a a term, I think, for different people who use it um, that's not always uniform, right? So different people might have different uh, definitions of it when they sort of, Use it to describe themselves. Um, and so for us in the series, uh, I thought it would be helpful to have a definition. When I talk about deconstruction, this is what I'm talking about. A practice of revisiting and, and rethinking long-held beliefs in the faith. Things that maybe are a part of our tradition that we've been a part of, that we've received and haven't always questioned, but now we're putting them under the microscope. It's kind of a simple, kind of a simple definition. And I think to start, first off, I think this is not something to fear, but actually, I really think it's something when we when we talk about deconstruction in that way it's something for us to embrace as christians um, it's actually, I think a pretty common thing in church history uh, and it's I think it's very Um, possible for us to live with questions, sort of, you know, things that don't always make perfect sense, where, you know, the threads are not always perfectly woven together. There's a few threads dangling. That's a very, I think, healthy way to live as a Christian, to live sometimes in some tension. Um, Because often our strength, our our faith is going to develop back stronger oftentimes when we allow ourselves to go through periods where we really look deeply at what we believe and why that's the case. Um, and in fact, I would, you know, if you do feel like you're in a period of this right now, uh, I would say one of the worst things that you can do is sort of assume your experience that you're going through right now is unique or, or no one in his, the history of the church has ever gone through something like this. Because I think it's helpful to know what you're going through is actually a pretty normal thing uh, in the faith, a, a, normal, a normal process. And you can lean on others. When, that, when that's the case, whether it's people you read, right, writers from the past, Christian thinkers in the past who've gone through that, or people in the present who have gone through it. I know I myself would have had, I wouldn't have called it this at the time, but I guess looking back on it now, I think it's fair to say I had periods where I sort of deconstructed some things. I kind of, you know, pulled it apart and, and it looked, looked at it and put it back together again, and there were a few pieces that were put back together differently than they were sort of assembled before. Like if you think of like a Lego, uh, you know, something you built out of Legos, like I pulled the Legos apart, put them back together again, and there were some pieces that were in different spots or maybe even a few pieces that were missing after that, Okay. Um, the purpose, I think, of the series is to say that like, this is an okay, in fact, maybe even healthy thing for us to do in the church. It's like taking the sunglasses that we're wearing off and making sure they're not cracked, right? There's not something wrong with them so that when we put them back on again, we make sure that they are helping us to see things well. Um, doubt is not an enemy to faith. Uh, often it's actually the, the soil that faith really grows in. It's like sort of periods of of, of doubt and really questioning things. Well, I think f- strong faith often grows in the midst of that. We shouldn't fear it. And like I said, I think it's, a, it's something we've seen happen in the history of the people who believe God on a somewhat uh, regular basis. So, we are, as Protestants, sitting in this room here in a Presby- you know, an old Presbyterian church, we're a Baptist church, right? We are part of something called the Reformation. And if you don't know much about the Reformation, it was this time where a bunch of people looked at the tradition of the church that they were living in in the midst of it, and they really asked some hard questions about it and figured, like, we need to sort of change some stuff here in order to be more faithful to Jesus, Okay, it was really, if you think about it, kind of a period of deconstruction that led to a lot of fruit growing from, all right? So this is sort of a normal thing that happens in the church. Now, another form of deconstruction, again, I think it's part of the tradition of the church and the people of God, of rethinking established beliefs or practices, is something called prophecy, now if you read the Bible especially in the Old Testament though you do see prophets in the New Testament you find these people who are sort of chosen by God they live within people they are uh, the people of God they are Israelites themselves but they challenge the people of God to be more fully themselves to ask the you know if is what we're doing really what we're called to do by God are we really being faithful and when the answer is no, then we should seek to remove that impurity or hypocrisy because it leads to abuse and false worship. Now, when you look at prophecy in the Old Testament, there's a couple of elements, I think, that sort of really describe all of it. And I, I, I'm, t- I'm taking this from a scholar named Walter Bergaman. He's an Old Testament um uh, an, an Old Testament scholar but he says um, that we you see these two elements of criticizing and then energizing in the prophets. And a great example of this is in Jeremiah 1:10. This is God speaking to Jeremiah, it's part of his call to go be a prophet. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So Jeremiah's call to be a prophet is um, including these two elements of uh, tearing down, sort of, you know, getting rid of something that was there before, but then building something back up in its place again. Okay, um, building back in its place something that God says needs to be built back up again. It's fueled by God. Okay, so the thing that was torn down was something that was not put there by God, and we need to deconstruct that perhaps, but something needs to be rebuilt back in its place. And so we can think about it like, you know, a a house, right? Uh, Instead of maybe tearing the whole thing down, we're going to take some parts out, remodel them, but then rebuild it back up again. The goal is to have a fully functioning house, one that people can live in, that is a place we can invite others into, that provides protection and all of the needs that we might have for it. The goal is to have that, but sometimes in order to have it, you do need to tear some stuff down again so that you can rebuild it back up again. And I think this is sometimes where we find that this modern deconstruction um, uh, movement that we find can lose some of its value because I, from at least in my observation, right, and maybe this is something you feel as well, a lot of times it can get fixated on just tearing down. Right? The whole goal is, like, let's take a jackhammer to everything, right? If we find one part of this thing that we think maybe shouldn't be there, the the, the, the thing is, like, we got to tear the whole thing down, okay? And so you find, I think, this sort of, like, and, and bubbling up within that is this sort of, like, and again, this is my observation, all right? So if you disagree, that's fine. But this is just kind of what I've observed as I've sort of seen this movement building up. You have almost these prophets of deconstruction that get a platform on social media. And, and it's kind of ironic to me, at least, that they themselves are very evangelistic, right? Sort of trying uh, kind of leading people towards a certain uh, uh, conclusion, but in my opinion, at least, not giving necessarily tools or vision to rebuild something back in its place, really, so that it's of a benefit for the people of God. Okay, and I think it's important that we don't forget that um, build up and plant, the energizing part of this, right? That's why I think it's important for us to sort of, when we do this deconstruction, to look at how it takes place in God's people, in the history, in the totality of the church, because that's where the fruit's gonna grow from it. All right, and so... um, for us as a church, we want to you know, do this well, and I figured, let's, let's take a series to do this where we sort of do deconstruct some things and then rebuild them back up again, and we kind of ask ourselves the question, when we go back to Jesus specifically, when we go back to Jesus specifically and we build, we start there as our starting point, and we build up back again off of him, what do we find, okay? And that's what, so that's what we're, we're, we're going to be doing this fall. Um, and a lot of this, for me, is sort of coming out of my own, you know, periods of, of deconstructing. Again, if, you want, if we want to use that word for it, stuff that I found is I really went back to Jesus himself. A lot of stuff that came out of that, you're going to hear in this series, okay? So this is a personal thing for me. So that's right, I'm actually really excited to share it uh, with you all for, through the next few months. Uh, And so that's where we'll be, rebuilding around Jesus for the fall. We'll be taking this all the way up to Advent, um, so the very end of November, this is where we'll be. And the the goal of the series is to sort of deconstruct and rebuild again around Jesus himself, who is the ultimate criticizing and then energizing act of God. That's one of the things we'll find as we go through this. So we'll talk about a bunch of different things you know, in regards to the faith. We'll talk about scripture. We'll talk about heaven and hell. We'll talk about our relationship as Christians with culture. Um, you know, why we do what we do here on Sunday morning. Why are we sitting in this room with someone on stage talking to you about Jesus uh, with, with worship bands and all that stuff? We're gonna, talk, we're gonna try to hit up on all those different things. As a part of this series, but what I really want to do is for these first three sermons, especially, is to really just lay the foundation in place and ask the question of this: Who is Jesus? Okay, who is Jesus? Now, a- as part of this, we are going to be uh, actually this is something new. We we did this online a little bit last year when we had to go you know online only. Uh, we did a little bit of question and response. Um, I want us to, we're going to try that again uh, here live, okay? So we'll we'll try that out for this series and kind of see how it goes. And if it it works out well, if it's something that we as a congregation get excited about, um, you know, maybe we'll bring it back another series here going forward. So if you would like to submit a question, um, you can go to our website, rescitychurch.org, and there should be on the front page a chance for you to submit a question in there. And uh, we'll get them. We might not get to all of them, um, but we'll try to do our best to, to answer, or not answer, but respond to them, all right? I don't want to, you know, portray myself as the guy with all the answers, but I'll do my best to give a response to it. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, maybe some follow-up conversation would be, would be the best way to handle it. We'll, we'll see. But anyway, I, I'm excited about that. So go, go ahead, go on our website. At the very end of the sermon, uh, we'll do our, our best to respond to those. We might not get to all of them. You know, depending on how many come in, um, we got to go eat ice cream after this. So, you know, we'll try to make sure we have time for that. But but yeah, go ahead and and, and fill that out and we'll get to as many as we can, hopefully. So week one here, we are talking about this question, who is Jesus? And we're going to start with Jesus sort of boots on the ground, how he was experienced initially by the people he came into contact with. And that is, you know, particularly as a prophet of deconstruction, but then also of rebuilding. Okay, so we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. Um, and you'll, that'll become more clear as to why we're starting here, all right? But I think it's important, again, as we experience Jesus, as we seek him out, who is this guy that's at the center of everything we believe? Let's try to go and experience it in the way that the people that initially experienced him did it. Okay, and so that's how we're going to do this today. Now, the basics of Jesus, the stuff that's pretty non-controversial. You might find some people out there who sort of debate some of these things and maybe advance some arguments, but largely it's really hard to disagree with a lot of the things I'm about to say about Jesus unless you think this movement that started up that historically we cannot deny was a major force in the world very quickly after the person of Jesus existed and lived and died and as Christians believe and, and confess that he rose again from the dead. Unless you think that all, you know, that all that happened after that sort of bubble up out of thin air, this stuff is pretty non-controversial. So Jesus was a Jewish man. He was born sometime around 4 B.C., Uh, He grew up in the region of Galilee, which in the town of Nazareth, which is in the northern part of the territory of Judea, which was a territory in the Roman Empire at the time, about 90-ish miles north of the capital city, Jerusalem, the famous city in the history of Israel. He spoke Aramaic because that's what everybody spoke at that time. Uh, He spoke at least some Hebrew, and likely he spoke some Greek. Again, just in in line with pretty much how most people in that time uh, spoke. Around A.D. 28, he emerged as a public figure, kind of well-known within Judea, uh, in the wake of someone named John the Baptist's ministry, Um, and John the Baptist is someone we, you know, and Jesus, both are someone we have corroborated kind of in outside sources, so we know that it's not just the Bible that we're getting this from. He was followed by a group of close disciples, and he engaged in itinerant ministry, which meant he traveled around to synagogues, to houses. He would do things in the open countryside. He'd pick a, a mountain or a lake to have people gather around because there was a, a lot of them, and they had to figure out some large place they could all gather in uh, where he would at least do works that were at least interpreted by people as being uh, you know, miraculous in some sense. We'll talk a little bit about that here in a second. And he also was preaching a certain agenda. He was trying to get a message across to people. And as he did this, he seemed to take on sort of roles that you would find in the, in the history of the people of Israel. He would sort of evoke uh, certain roles that you would find if you read the Hebrew scriptures, which were sort of, you know, well-read and understood at the time. As a rabbi, as a sage, as a healer, as an exorcist, as a liberator, and as a prophet. Okay, we'll come back to that, the prophet piece especially here. He went to Jerusalem despite the fact that he spent a lot of his time in the northern part of Judea. He went to Jerusalem and the temple at least once and more likely several times. And the last time that he went there carried on a sort of a bit different tone than the time before because at that time he was, he was crucified. He was killed on a cross. He ate and celebrated with people of all conditions of society. Um, and sometimes these people, you know, were attracted to him, followed him. Other times he s- sought them out. Either way, he, was, he spent a lot of time around people who were, you weren't supposed to spend time around, essentially. Um, and this and more really got him on the bad side of the high priestly uh, establishment of the region. And so he was crucified along with countless other Jewish men in that period. He was crucified, and his followers at least claimed that he'd been raised again from the dead. They claimed that they had seen him bodily speaking to them in the same way that he had uh, before he died. And they carried themselves as if that was true and were willing to even die for that. Okay? And the movement spread as a result of this. People claiming to follow this risen person, Jesus, who had done all these things we just talked about and had called them to follow him now. Now, this is all pretty hard to debate, right? This is stuff that's pretty non-controversial. And we're going to stop here today, just with these things that like, we're going to work with just this stuff today and just talk a little bit about the implications of Jesus, even right here as our starting point. And we'll build on this. We'll kind of, you know, we'll go in in, in subsequent weeks. We'll talk about his death and resurrection. We'll talk about him as God. We'll go to all those places. But today, I just want to specifically focus on him as a prophet, okay? These holy men and women who came from God to the covenant people with a message, to criticize and to energize in the midst of specific situations, to call them to be faithful to their God. And he interacted with uh, individuals and institutions, not just Jesus, but all all, all kinds of prophets. Now, you might not have really thought about Jesus as a prophet very much before. Again, the traditions that we find ourselves in obviously highlight Jesus as lots of other things, as God, as Messiah, as as shepherd, um, all of these different places are oftentimes our the, the, way in to seeking out who Jesus is. I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to have, you know, sought Jesus out in that way initially. And again, we'll talk about that stuff today. But um, if you read your Gospels, if you just go through it and you look at the number of times that people who are interacting with Jesus refer to him as a prophet, it's kind of startling. It's very clear that this is how he was initially interpreted by people, as a prophet, just like the prophets of old. And he didn't really push back on it either. He didn't really like tell people, you're wrong, I'm actually the second person of the Trinity, and I've existed from before eternity, and you know, he, that's not how he responds to them. He let them think that about him, and he really stepped into that role as well. And so I want st- to start us here... In, uh as we sort of get into the actual scripture actual places in the gospel where Jesus himself speaks at what is really the intro of his prophetic agenda and we find this in mark 1 15 okay this is the place where he's sort of in all you know the, in all three of the synoptic gospels at least they sort of have this moment where he's like he gets he goes into the wilderness he gets baptized and then Something, something changes, and he goes into full-on um, you know, uh, outworking of his agenda mode. And he starts it off by saying this, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So this sort of summed up his message. Okay? This, is, this is sort of the, the if you took everything that he says after this point, you can put it under this heading. Okay? This is where he's starting off when he goes to people. And each part of this uh, verse, of this proclamation, this announcement, is important, and it tells us something about who Jesus is and what he's up to. So we're going to analyze it sort of word by word here to kind of figure out what he's talking about. So first of all, the kingdom of God. Now this isn't something some phraseology that Jesus made up himself that he thought would be really helpful to explain what he was all about. He's actually picking up on a sort of uh, idea or a phrase that was well known within the Old Testament and then also the Jewish people of the time. They, they were all about this idea of the kingdom of God. And it was language to describe simply this, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was becoming king on earth, not just in heaven. And when he did, he would put things right. Okay? He would take the things that had happened to Israel and their sort of tortured history, especially over the last several hundred years, he would make them right again. He would fulfill all these promises made by the prophets to restore the people of Israel, to uh, forgive their sins, to sort of reconstitute them once again into his people. And this age that God was going to institute was good news. It was a gospel. That's what the word gospel means, It's just good news. People are excited about this. People want to hear this, and they're longing for it. Okay, so when Jesus says this, people's ears start to perk up because it's something they've been waiting for. Now, it doesn't mean they think for sure this sort of guy, this carpenter who you know, lived in northern, uh, the northern part of Judea was the one who was actually bringing it, but they were at least interested to hear what he had to say. He says it had come near... Okay, the buzzer is about to go off. The clock is about to strike midnight. Uh, the sale is about to get to begin. There's an urgency to it. Okay, like it's not like this is happening, you know, in your kid's lifetime. It's about to happen right now. You need to get ready for it. There needs to be a sense of urgency to you about what is taking place through me right now, or through this announcement that I'm making. You need to get ready for it. When he says, "Repent and believe," okay. So we have a lot of connotations with this, right? This is very religious language. I don't know how often you hear people, you know, use the word repent or believe in non-religious settings anymore, right? I, I actually, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I, I have a hard time uh, thinking of, you know, that that being a part of our common voca- vocabulary when it's not really used in a religious sense. Okay, and and uh, I mean that's just how it's developed for us, right? As Christianity has become a major force in the world, a sort of dominant force in our society, um, but in Jesus' own time and place, it didn't necessarily have all of that religious language connotation to it. So here's a really helpful example of a a place where someone else uses this terminology. So there's a guy named Josephus. He's a a historian, a writer. He's a statesman of the time. We we know a lot about what we know about the first century in Palestine from uh, this guy, Josephus. And in one of his books, he's writing a story about how in AD 66, he's going to settle a conflict between a couple of factions who are going to fight each other. And one of them, one of the sides has got some guerrilla warriors in it, and he tries to go talk to one of them. And it turns out this guy actually tries to, tries to kill him, tries to kill Josephus. And so Josephus is trying to talk with him about this sort of revolutionary zeal that he has, and he's trying to convince him to, turn, you know, to, to not do this anymore. Okay, And so when he's talking with them, here's what he tells him: I would nevertheless condone his actions if he would show repentance and prove his loyalty to me. Now, this can also be rendered exactly the way that Jesus says this in Mark 1.15. If he would show, if he would repent and believe in me, if he would turn from this agenda of revolutionary zeal, of sort of political zealousness, if he would turn from that and accept sort of what I'm telling him, turn away from that and 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 go down the path I'm telling him to go down to, things would work out well for him. And so when Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is coming, it's coming near, what he's telling people is you need to turn from your agendas for being Israel or for being people of God and to follow mine instead. You need to assess the paths down which you're walking and you need to follow the path that I'm about to announce. That's what he's talking about here. And so your agendas, which were oftentimes centered on revolution or maybe compromise, both in relation to Rome itself, he's telling them, when God actually shows up here, when this kingdom of God comes to earth, your agendas are not going to stand up when they're exposed to that. And so what you need to do is you need to follow my agenda, because that's the thing that God is going to be working through. It will not lead to your destruction. Instead, it's good news. It's good news to follow. And so this reputation starts to develop around Jesus. And we find this actually, this is from the end of the book of Luke. This is actually after he's been crucified, and Jesus has risen again, and he's just talking to some, you know, some people who'd followed him in the past. They don't recognize him for some reason. Um, but he's asking them, hey, what's been going on here lately? And they're like, dude, have you been living under a rock for the last week? And they kind of tell him what happened, that this person named Jesus died. And they say about him, this is, what, this is what the reputation of Jesus was, kind of around just the common people. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. So again, let's analyze the different parts of this. The prophet part of this we've talked about a little bit. But um, the, the part where he says he's powerful and word and deed before God and all the people is a, another important part of how people perceive Jesus. So the message that Jesus gives in Mark 1.15, he continues to give it over and over and over again in different ways to people, to make it stick in their minds, to, to sort of alert them to this sense of urgency that they need to have if they're going to respond to what God is doing through him. And so he does this through stories, which we call parables. Um, he does it through symbolic action, like what he does in the temple, where he walks in and he overthrows all the tables of these people who are uh, doing uh, business in the temple. He, that's, that's, sort of, that's a symbolic action that he's doing to sort of make a point. He does it through preaching. The Sermon on the Mount, that's like a famous part of the book of Matthew. This is him preaching a message, preaching a sermon to people. And then finally, through mighty works, through miracles or signs. Now, he likely told these parables and messages over and over and over again, okay, uh, with different variations, which probably accounts for why sometimes the way it's told to us in one gospel isn't exactly the same as it's told to us in another. It's just because he said it more than once. And, you know, Matthew's, you know, the account that he got from someone was a little bit different from the someone that Luke got because it was a different, you know, um, uh, instance of Jesus telling it to people. And so. He would tell these stories or these messages to people, and he would use he would connect with people by things that they were sort of um, you know uh, 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 that that happened in their normal life. He would he would connect to different things. So he would often start his parables off by saying things like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, or it's like a woman who you know misplaces some money, or it's like a farmer planting a field. All these things that people were familiar with. And if he were talking to us today, he might say something like, the kingdom of God is like someone who forgets their email password, or someone who tried planting some basil in their yard this summer, or someone who went away on a work trip, okay? It would be these kinds of things that he would be telling to connect us to our daily lives. So we'd be like, oh yeah, I get that. I've I've done this before. The characters in this story, I can resonate with. And he would use these to sort of, you know, redefine what the kingdom of God was according to how he was announcing it. But Jesus wasn't just talk, okay? He wasn't just, you know, going around, um, you know, like preaching a message like an influencer or, you know, a salesperson or something, trying to get you excited about it through good rhetoric or something like that. Okay, he would back it up with with powerful deeds, okay? Um, Powerful in word and deed, like like the person says here. Now, the word miracle, which is kind of how we, tip, you know, how we typically think of what Jesus was doing, that word is actually only used once in the Gospels, which is kind of interesting. Um, uh, usually what you find are words like uh, paradoxa, which is just things you wouldn't expect or coincidences. Um, dunamis, so sh- signs of power, you know, shows of power or authority. Or terata or semia, uh, which is like a sign or a portent. Okay? These are the types of you know, words that the gospel writers use to describe these powerful deeds that Jesus did. And these are evidence of his authority. There are reasons to listen to him beyond the fact that he's also a very charismatic person. Right? He's a, he is a good rhetorician. He does, you know, he does a really good job of getting your attention and sort of you know, leading you to a conclusion. But he also did things beyond that, too. He showed sort of uh, shows of power and authority that also grabbed you and made you so you were like... I gotta listen to what this guy is saying. Like, he, he is not just talk. He's, he is backing it up. And, and, and that's where, like, the science of it is not necessarily important. It's not something to get tripped up on necessarily because regardless, these are shows of power that get people's attention. And we can just assume that, like, Jesus knew what was gonna get people's attention because people are flocking to him to see this. Now, obviously, the most important show of power that Jesus does is the resurrection, all right, that's the one where that's the mic drop one that everyone is like, "Okay, okay, okay. You know, I can understand someone doing a magic trick or something, right? A lot of people do stuff like this and maybe we just got tricked, but that's a little bit harder to do, <laughs> right? And we'll talk about the resurrection later. Again, we're going to we're going to put a pin in that. We'll come back to it a little bit later on, but that's another way we can think about the resurrection as a show of power. Now, through these sort of powerful deeds, he would redraw social or religious or political boundaries. That's part of what he's doing. So the things that would ostracize you in that time, according to the, the law that was in place, were things like impurity or sin. Oftentimes, you were sort of you were made to be disconnected from the community because of those things. Now, some of that's for hygienic reasons, right? Um, other times it, it, it's for, for other reasons that just this would you know, make us impure for some reason. Um, but medical conditions that would make you richly impure, for example, Jesus would heal people of that. So not only are their lives better now, but they can now come back into the community, so, he's changing up people's social realities as well through these things. He's making it so they can now be a part of the people of God again. There's no exclusion, there's no distance between them and the people of God and God Himself. And the same thing is taking place when He forgives people of their sin. Again, this is supposed to remove guilt from them, but it's also to make it that, it, at least if they're following Him, right, and, and the other people that are paying attention to Him, they now believe these people are a part of the community of God once again. And he's doing this, you know, the temple was supposed to be the only place where you could do this stuff. And Jesus is saying, something new is going on here, okay? I am actually the place where God forgives sins. That's what he, that's the kind of a power and authority that he's doing. And so he would go into these places where typically if you went into a space and you interacted with someone who had an impurity or, or sin, typically the way it worked is their impurity would stick to you, right? And you'd have to do some sort of, you know, ritual to get rid of that impurity, but instead, when Jesus would interact with these people, his wholeness, his power, his righteousness would uh, stick to them instead. Okay, that's what it seemed like would happen when he'd meet with people. And so it'd be like if, you know, you go into, you're, you're a person who doesn't have COVID, and you go into a room full of people who have it, they're quarantined. You know, typically when you go into that room, you're expect you need to quarantine now, right? You probably are the one who's going to catch it from them. It works the other way around with Jesus. His health is the thing that sticks to the other people. And it creates new realities for them. That's the significance of what he's doing. So so to sum all of this up, again, this is not that controversial. Uh, Jesus was constantly summoning people to God's kingdom through mighty deeds, through forgiveness, through stories, through mercy and grace and love. But then he was also challenging them, like a prophet, to reassess their agendas, to turn from them, and to follow him instead. Again, this is very much in line with the prophets that you read about in the Old Testament. And, and again, this is very general. We're going to get into all the other stuff later on, okay? Um, but this is a good place to start. And I think when we leave it here, there's actually a bunch of different, or there's three different things I want to focus on in particular for us today as a takeaway for us. Okay, when we take this very general starting point of who Jesus was, I think it still speaks to us. Okay? And, and here are three responses, I think, we can have to this response of Jesus. Now, the first is this. We can deconstruct him, and we can rebuild him back in our own image. All right? And I think that this is going to be our temptation a lot of times. Now, I want to start out by saying, like, I know for a lot of people who, who are feeling like they're in this sort of deconstruction stage, um, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of fear that goes with it. Okay? And I want to be really sensitive to that. I understand if you are in this place right now, there's a lot of fear, like you know, sh- being shunned by your family or by your community, right? Or being afraid of going to hell or all these different things that might crop up as you ask hard questions and you've grown up in a place where these questions are not allowed to be asked. And I know a lot of times people don't choose this, right? It happens to them. They don't actually plan uh, to be in the stage where they're asking hard questions, but something happens to them where they can't help but ask these hard questions, right? That's a, that, that's a fear. And if that's where you're at, I want to encourage you to do it well, okay? I understand that you oftentimes don't get to choose that, but you do get to choose how you, you know, move forward in the midst of this. And this is where I want to offer you a sort of, uh, I, I want to offer you some advice as you do do that, Okay you can, right, listen, a lot of people are like, you know, it's good. You took down the picture of the perm-haired Jesus who looks like a movie star from the 1950s, and he's wearing a MAGA hat or something, right? You got rid of that. But a lot of times, people replace that with a mirror, where now Jesus is just them, right? It's whatever they're into, whatever their values are, or whatever, um, whatever, you know, is trendy in society, whatever, you know, that's what happens a lot of times when we go into this stage. And I just want to tell you, Jesus is not going to be of any benefit to you if you're just going to try to form him an Im- image of yourself and the things you value, okay? He's not going to be any value to that. He, he just is a Trojan horse, It's just like a, a, you know, a chance for you to sort of feel good about the things you already like, okay? And I think it's important for us to— um, understand that when we really do seek out who Jesus was, he's not the kind of guy, again, even in this initial sketch of him, he's not the kind of guy that is going to, you know, sit there and let you pick him apart. I think it's pretty clear that he's going to turn the question around on you, right? That was what he was all about when people come into contact with him, was turn the question around on them. When you read the Gospels, you look at these elites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who would come to Jesus. And a lot of times they're trying to trick him. They're trying to deconstruct him, show him to be a fraud. And he turns the question around on them. And they're like, what the heck just happened? Okay, That's how Jesus was when people encountered him in his time. And so to put it another way, and I came across this a few months ago uh, by a guy named uh, David Bennett. He's an Oxford PhD student, but I just love the way he framed this. We don't deconstruct Jesus. De- Jesus deconstructs and then reconstructs us again. And if you're aware of this guy's story, I won't go into it. Um, if you really want to read his book, it's called The War on Loves. You really see how he encountered this when he um, sought it out. Um, but I, and I think you know, for him, he's specifically talking about the Jesus of faith that we encounter. Right? When, when people have a real experience of who Jesus is, you're rarely the same again afterwards. But I think it's still also true of this sort of initial sketch that we take, that we took of Jesus today. If you take this sort of general, non-controversial picture of Jesus, if you take it seriously, right, if you go into it with the agenda of being willing to let him challenge you because that's what he was all about, you will find yourself being deconstructed and then rebuilt back again in a new way as you set aside your agenda and you'd be willing to follow his instead. Now, a second way that we can um, respond to this view of Jesus is just as prevalent and just, I think, as dangerous, because it's really the same thing, although it's kind of an opposite in the same way, okay? And that's where you can be in a Jesus space, right? You can have been in a church or you know, evangelical subculture your whole life, but you're really not listening to Jesus. You're actually just kind of tuning him out, right? You know all the language, right? You, you know all of the rules, all of the things we're supposed to believe, and, and you, you're good at that stuff. But you're really not listening to Jesus then, are you? Right? You're actually, he becomes white noise, and, and Jesus is not really able to speak to you because you just sort of learned a culture. If we're going to really meet Jesus, we have to be willing to let him uh, challenge us. We have to be willing to do hard things. We have to be willing to, to deconstruct things, If we come across it and realize, I don't think Jesus has been calling me to this, I think it's just a part of wider American culture that I grew up in in some way, okay? If we're going to really come to Jesus, we have to be willing to be challenged by him. And Jesus himself, he had hard words for people like this. This is Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name. Sorry, we, yeah, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay? This is a real challenge for us, if we've been in the church our whole lives, is to get to a place of comfort where we're really not hearing from Jesus. Okay? We're going through the motions we're playing the game right, that we've learned from our parents or people we've known our whole lives, we're really not listening to Jesus. When he does speak to us, it just becomes white noise. We're not taking it seriously. And I think it's really important for us to consistently be willing to be deconstructed by Jesus so that we can hear his voice in our lives in the present and not trick ourselves into thinking we're following him, but really just living out whatever we've been handed. And so I think the contrast to these first two ways to respond to Jesus is this last one, a life of repenting and believing in him, okay? Instead of building a Jesus up in our own image or tuning him out, we are continually meeting him, continually seeking him out. We're willing to turn from our agendas and to follow him when we're called to it. We're not trying to put Jesus into some box, but we're willing to react to him instead of telling him to react to us. And at, at its heart, this is what it means to respond to the, the message of Jesus that we talked about today. To trust him, to repent and believe, and to actually think God is doing something in, in our midst. And he has been doing something in our midst for the last 2,000 years. Okay, so what we're gonna do now is we are gonna do a little bit of Q&R. Julie, do we have any that's come through? Okay.
1: We do. Um,
0: if you do we have can can people throw any more in or we got enough?
1: I mean we have several but if you have more questions throw them in maybe throw we'll maybe find maybe
0: we'll get to them um, the websites on here rescitychurch.org if you're watching online or here in person go ahead and throw them in we might we might get a chance for them. If not though, I mean seriously, if I don't get a chance to respond to it, we're going to be out there eating ice cream. We have got nothing else to do. You might as well, you know, we can talk about it, right? Or talk to someone else about it, okay? Don't just leave the question hanging.
1: Yeah, we can maybe find another way to respond to some of these other questions as well. Okay, the first one, um, can you say more about what the kingdom of God is and what the gospel is? And some context, mm-hmm. the the question asker gives, it says, growing up, I heard gospel equals Jesus came to die for your sins, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea of gospel equals the kingdom of God coming near is uh, new. So, yeah. say more about that.
0: Yeah, so this is a great question, and totally one that I think... So, like, as the mo you know Jesus starts we start the very basic today, right where he 's talking about the kingdom of God. No one had any clue he was going to die when he said this stuff, when he 's talking about the gospel and the kingdom of God, um, and he 's telling people what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God this whole time, and, I, and I, I, we 'll we'll get to this a little bit here later in the series, but I think the way we should understand how those things get brought together, and I think in a sense we should. We should bring those things together, but I also think we need to have a lot more depth to what the kingdom of God and the gospel are than just Jesus died for our sins to forgive us and give us eternal life someday, all right? The gospel is that, okay? That's a, that's a part of the gospel. The gospel is like a diamond, right? With all these different facets to it, right? You know how on a diamond, there's all these different sort of sides to it, right? And each one of them is beautiful and necessary to the diamond, but they sort of need each other. The, the, the gospel is a very deep thing, it's a, it's a way we live. It's a way we walk. Right? It, it, is, um, it is a response from, uh, to us from God, though. right? It's something that God starts and God kicks off. And I think that's where Jesus's death and resurrection sort of are the fuel of the kingdom. Everything that Jesus is telling the people to do, if you look even back at the prophets themselves, when they talk about the kingdom coming, about God returning and being king, they say things like, you're going to need a new heart, though, to pull this off okay? You're going to need to have your heart circumcised. Some, something that needs to be changed within you in order for you to live this kingdom out. That was always there in the message of the prophets. And, and when Jesus shows up, he lives it out by being the one who sort of enables us to do it through dying, through giving us forgiveness of sins, through um, raising into new life, through giving us resurrection life, and giving us the Holy Spirit, which sort of empowers us to live all that out. Um, but I think at its, at its core, the kingdom of God is God's presence breaking into the world through Jesus, and Jesus is the only one who can bring it, and we have to be connected to Jesus in order for ourselves to be a part of the kingdom, and the gospel is the good news that God has done that in Jesus. I think that's like a really you know, simple explanation for it, and all these other things that sort of get tied into it are a part of it, um, but it can be confusing, I think, to limit it to just that, that one thing, even though it's a central part of it.
1: Great. Okay. Uh, The second question, um, if Jesus sees himself as a prophet, where did that begin in the Old Testament? It seems like this uh, idea of prophecy spontaneously appears where the priests and kings are appointed through laws and divine calling.
0: Yeah. So um, that's a good question. I mean, Prophets are, you know, the priests are part of like a, you have to be a certain family to be a priest in the Old Testament. Prophets kind of just get called. Like there's not necessarily like a uniform. You have to be this type of person to be called as a prophet in the Old Testament. And a lot of times like I think David's even called a prophet. Is that is that right, Aaron? Aaron, Aaron would know. David called a prophet, right? Moses is called a prophet. So some of these people that you wouldn't necessarily think of as prophets also, get the term "prophet" applied to them, so it's in a sense it's a bit of a loose term, but it's also a sort of an office at times too. So you have all these false prophets that show up in different books. So, like in um, in the time of Jeremiah, for example, he's prophesying on God's behalf, and there is this whole court, you know, in, in the court of the king. There is all these other false prophets who are like you know, speaking as prophets, but they're not really speaking on behalf of God. And God's really upset with them. And, you know, it's a a whole thing. So there were a lot of prophets running around in the Old Testament, some of them not actually speaking on God's behalf. And when we study just the history of the first century, there's a lot of other prophets that are, you know, bubbling up as well. So prophet's kind of a loose term. And that's why... Jesus isn't just a prophet, and we'll you know we'll talk about that more as we uh, go forward. How he is also Messiah, how he becomes comes to be sort of seen as God himself. We'll talk about that stuff too. Um, but prophet, is this a good? jumping in point that a lot of people in the old testament have had. and and one last thing on it, and then you can ask your next question there is some sort of there's some debate on Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 18:15 a prophet who will come after him who will be greater than him and there is some debate as to whether or not Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of that prophet it's kind of hard to know for sure if that was like in the front of his mind when he was doing what he was but there was the sort of sort of like is this the prophet that Moses was talking about? Is you know is that is that who this is? Um, so there is a lot of sort of grounding in the Old Testament for what Jesus is doing, both historically and then also scripturally.
1: We have a lot of other great questions, but for sake of time, I think um, I'll keep these questions, and we will definitely find a way to uh, respond to them in some form or another. So thank you all for These Mm -hmm. are all really, really good questions. I'm excited to get to them in future messages.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it, you guys. Um, Let me pray. We'll head into a time of worship and communion after that. God, help us as we... um, really ask hard questions this fall um, about who you are, about what you're doing in our lives, in our midst. Um, I pray that you would just be with us with your spirit, um, just like you have been. As as people have asked hard questions in the past, many, many times in the future, and you have used that to, to call them anew, to make them new, to, to grow stronger faith from the soil of those hard questions, God. I pray that we would do that as a church um, over the next few months, God. Be with us as, as we do that, and we do it in a, to glorify and honor your son, Jesus, who we do think is at the center of all we do, who deconstructs us and then rebuilds us again so that we may live lives in response to the kingdom of God and all that Jesus has done to initiate that. And pray this in the name of him, of Jesus Christ, amen.